Hello and welcome to the Stories About Autism podcast. My name's James and I'm your host and each week I'll be getting to speak to a special guest who shares their own story about autism. I'm the dad of two boys, Tommy and Jude, and they're both autistic. I've been writing a blog called Stories About Autism for about three years now where I share everyday stories from our lives. It's given me the chance to get to know lots and lots of different people in the autism community. So I'm using that and doing a podcast where I get to speak to them. So I speak to autistic adults, uh, parents of children with autism and professionals who work with people in the autism community too. This week is season two, episode five, and I'll be speaking to Miriam Gwynn. Now, Miriam is a fellow blogger who lives in Scotland and is the mum to twins, Isaac and Naomi, and both of them are autistic. Even though they're twins, you'll get to hear how different autism is for Isaac and Naomi, kind of just how different autism is for Tommy and Jude too, which is really interesting and one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to show people just how different autism can be. So we talk about lots of different stories that have gone on in their lives and how things have changed over the years. Um, There's a few really interesting bits, such as how Google Maps has changed Isaac's life. We talk about how his fascination for lifts meant that uh, his story appeared on This Morning and he got sent lift videos from all around the world. And how Naomi uh, has also been... (laughs) as she calls it, famous um, because of some of the amazing things that she's done, such as campaigning for a new swing for her brother. So yeah, really, really interesting chat. I've been reading Miriam's blog for years, um, since before I started blogging. So it was really good to get the chance to speak to her and find out more about Isaac and Naomi. If this is your first episode, please make sure to go back and check out some of the other stories. There's some really, really interesting ones there that I'm sure you'll enjoy. If you get the chance, I'd love it if you could leave me a review on iTunes, tell a friend about the podcast, leave a comment. Just every time you do something like that, it helps uh, it helps the podcast be found and ultimately more people learn about autism. Anyway, here it is. Here's my chat with Miriam. I really hope you enjoy it. Miriam, hello. Hi, James. It's good to hear from you. Yeah, lovely to speak to you finally. I know. It's been a while, hasn't it? <laughs> I was trying to think when I first... Uh, read one of your blogs I think I mean you've been blogging I think longer than me so I think you I found your blog before I started blogging that's that's how long ago it was my goodness you're making me feel old (laughs) no I think what I mean is it's you know you've you've been sort of telling your autism story for for a long while now haven't you I have yep um 2000 January 2013 was when I first started blogging on my 36th birthday. Oh, was it? Ah, so you, you decided to start on your birthday? Um, it wasn't an instant decision, really. It was more um, I was edging towards 40 uh, rather too quickly, and just felt that I wanted to achieve something. I'd obviously had jobs, I'd done lots of different things with my life. But here I was at home with uh, two children at this point had both been diagnosed with autism and I just kind of felt, well, I was, I was stuck at home. Life didn't seem to be going the way that I had planned it to mm. go. A month before Isaac had just been diagnosed with a genetic condition 
um, on top of his autism diagnosis, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, and I just felt that the weight of that was quite a lot. And I just thought I wanted to tell, originally it was going to be his story. Um, and I wanted to sort of tell people about this rare genetic condition that he had and why I was so worried about it. So my first blog post was actually called The Story So Far. And it was just a sort of update on Isaac. And originally, it was really going to be about Isaac and Isaac's story. And it sort of just developed from there. It's got a bit of a life of its own now, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. So, okay, so for, for people who have never read your blog before, let's let's give them a, a quick intro into, into you and, and your family. Mm-hmm, no bother. Um, my name's Miriam. I'm up in sunny Scotland or icy Scotland today as it is. Um, I'm mum to miracle twins, Isaac and Naomi, who have just turned 10 last week. And um, I've got a husband who has also now been diagnosed with autism and also has the same genetic condition as Isaac, which is neurofibromatosis type 1. Um, so that's me. I was a teacher. I've also done so many other jobs in my life that I can't even remember them. <laughs> um, the biggest one was that I was a teacher for a very short period of time, um, went to university, got a degree, I've ran my own business, and now I'm a full-time carer for the three people in my family. So that's me. Okay. So you mentioned, sorry, you mentioned Miracle Twins earlier on. Yeah, the, the, um, I wasn't supposed to have children. I had tried for... My husband and I got married and we wanted to try for a family straight away and we tried and we tried and we tried and nothing was happening. Um, Eventually, after many years, I plucked up the courage to go to my GP and to seek some advice and it turned out that they, first of all, they thought I had polycystic ovaries, um, which means that your ovaries have got cysts and you're not always ovulating so therefore falling pregnant is is extremely difficult yeah and then uh after some more tests they discovered that it wasn't that it was actually another rare condition that means that i'm steroid dependent um okay. and, and eventually they put me on the list for ivf and but they did say to me you've got a less than one percent chance of the ivf less than one percent wow less than one percent chance and even if you do conceive, you, you wouldn't be able to carry them to full term. Well, I did conceive on the first attempt and I carried the children to 39, 38 weeks and five days. Amazing. So it was a full time. And that was an elective section because of my adrenal issues. And and they were born, Isaac was £6.1 and Naomi was £4.11. So they were perfect when they were born. Wow, they really are miracle twins. They very much are. Yeah. And I don't tell that side of the story probably as often as I should. Mm. No, that's that's really interesting. Okay, so let, let's go back to the early days. I mean, obviously I can imagine how, how made up you were when, when you first had twins and after such a sort of miracle for them to be here. When did you first maybe suspect that, that uh, there was something different going on? That's a very difficult um question to properly answer because when the twins were born it's it's quite kind of difficult to speak about because it isn't something that's generally discussed but I bonded immediately with Naomi I breastfed both babies and I bonded uh, very well and very quickly with Naomi and I struggled 
to bond with Isaac. And so I had felt that the difficulties that perhaps I was picking up with them were down to the fact that I hadn't bonded as well with them. And obviously that gave very conflicting um, difficulties in my mind. You know, yeah, was I imagine. perhaps not giving him the time that he needed? Was it my fault? Uh, was I doing something wrong? I had a fantastic team of support uh, medically um, and a, a wonderful health visitor who reassured me that it wasn't. And then we, we started talking quite early on about the fact that Naomi would give good eye contact when I was feeding, but Isaac wouldn't. Yeah. And so we started wondering, you know, maybe he did have a turn in his eye that was quite noticeable. So that was picked up before he was a year old. But developmentally, I started getting concerned. I used to take the children across the road from me was at a library and I used to take them every single week to something called Rhyme Time. And we would sing nursery rhymes and, and they would read a story and all the usual stuff. And the children loved it. But by about a year old, I was noticing that I was still holding two floppy children in my arms while everybody else's children were sitting up, some of them crawling about. And I realised that my children weren't actually doing what other children their age seemed to be doing with ease. Right. Um, so I called my health visitor back and he came out the next day and he, and he checked them over and he, he raised concerns. Naomi wasn't rolling over. Isaac, neither of them were pulling themselves up. They weren't really sitting. Um, so they were referred to a paediatrician. And it was so that was about 12, just over. I think by the time all this happened, they were nearly about 18 months. They still were only just starting to crawl. And Isaac had no uh, words at all. And the paediatrician saw them at 22 months. And that was my first induction to the word autism. Um, because at 22 months, the paediatrician said, we're looking likely that your son has severe autism. Okay, so at that time, just Isaac or... Um, just Isaac for autism. Yeah. Um, they were concerned about Naomi. They had spoken about the fact that she was struggling with her gross movements was the biggest concern at that point. She wasn't, neither of them were walking. And so this was becoming the biggest concern. But Isaac didn't respond to his name. He wasn't really aware of his surroundings. Um, he, he had no words. He wasn't following what other people were doing. His eyes just didn't follow. So they were very concerned about the physical development for both mm. of them, but more the social and communication for Isaac at that point. And you said that was your first introduction to autism. Had you suspected or did you know anything about autism before then? I'd, I was a teacher. And in the four years of training to be a teacher, we had one lecture in four years on special educational really? needs. One lecture? One lecture. Um, so I had heard the word autism, but the only thing I'd really picked up was that it was lifelong and that there wasn't a cure. Right. And it was in amongst a whole lot of other things like dyslexia, cerebral palsy, spina bifida. Everything was done in one lecture and that was it back then. So I knew the word and I knew it was a big thing, but obviously you're not really looking for things in your own child. Yeah. Um, and I was more concerned about the fact that he wasn't walking and he wasn't 
he didn't seem to be able to see very well. And at that point, I was shocked because I'd went in there thinking they were going to say, they're just twins, they're a little bit behind, they'll catch mm. up. I wasn't expecting in any way to have any sort of word to, to describe what was going on. Obviously, that wasn't the formal diagnosis. That was just yeah. Isaac was being put on the pathway, but it was extremely likely that this is what he had. So what happened next? Like how... um, so what happened is he went on to the pathway and everything seemed to, to happen very quickly after that. But our whole lives on a personal level um, were very difficult at that time. Our house was in the process of getting repossessed. Our business oh, no. was falling apart. So this was part of our lives were falling apart in front of us. Yeah. Um, so we moved house. Um, all the referrals were put in place. And before we knew it, all of a sudden, my time with my children at home doing what I enjoyed doing, we had routines that we did, were suddenly interrupted. We had speech and language therapists coming to the house. We had play therapists coming to the house. We had appointments for people to, to meet the children, paediatrician appointments, and it all just seemed to, to sort of escalate very, very quickly. Mm. And at that point, there seemed to be a sort of urgency with all the professionals that the children should go to nursery. Looking back, it felt to me as if everybody was saying, you're obviously not capable of looking after them, which wasn't the case. Yeah. But... Um, that was how it came across to me. It felt very much like you obviously have failed at this um, and therefore we'll put them into nursery and this will sort everything out. But it was a very supportive nursery that we put them into and I'll I never, ever forget um, going to view the nursery. And by this time, the twins were two and a half and I met the head teacher. And she said, come and have a look around. So we went to have a look around and she said, put the children down on the floor and they can go and play. And I looked at my husband and my husband looked at me and we thought, neither of them can walk. They're two and a half. Well, they still weren't walking then. They still weren't walking at two and a half. Wow. So when we spoke to the head teacher and said, neither of them are walking, that obviously set major alarm bells ringing in her head. And at this point, she put the two children into a, what I now know was a sensory room. At the time, I wasn't really sure what it was. Yeah. Uh, she put them into a sensory room and she put some staff members there and she took us into her office. And she was so kind. There was no judgment. There was no feeling of you failed. It was very much, I would like to help you. There's obviously the children are struggling Let's see what we can do to help. And within three weeks, they had three mornings at nursery there. Um, and Isaac never started in the two to three room. He started in the baby room and they had one-to-one support for him from the first day he started. And Naomi had one-to-one and she went into the toddler room. And, and they hoped by separating them that this might give them the time individually and the assessment period so Isaac stayed in that baby room till he was, before he wasn't even three, and then he was given a specialist place and a specialist nursery, um, which we now know is like a special school. Yeah. And Naomi stayed at the mainstream nursery, but by this time they were starting to flag up 
she wasn't speaking, she wasn't socially joining in, and the nurse, that nursery were the first ones to say, by this time Isaac was already on the pathway to diagnosis, um, and everybody was sure we were dealing with severe autism, among a, a lot of other complex difficulties. And by now they were starting to, to say, we wonder if there's something going on with Naomi as well. Um, so that was really how things started. And I'm indebted to that nursery head teacher for saying, this isn't your fault. Um, because at the time that was a, a heavy on my mind. Yeah, I bet. And that's a horrible place to be in, to be thinking things that's like a, that. That's a when... terrible place. Yeah. So that's coming to sort of towards the end of nursery time. Um, <laughs> when did Naomi receive a diagnosis? Well, when um, Naomi started nursery, they kept on saying she's not speaking, she's not speaking. And at home, by this time, Naomi was very verbal and very um, clear in her communication. She had a lot of words. Okay, so she was talking at home. So she was talking at home and she was stringing sentences together. And I couldn't understand. It was frustrating for me because... Isaac wasn't speaking because Isaac couldn't speak. Hmm. So there was an assumption automatically made when Naomi didn't speak at nursery that she was also non-verbal. Yeah. And it was very difficult to be believed that she was a fluent speaker at home. So eventually she was referred to speech and language. Um, we hadn't even attended there twice when she was diagnosed immediately with selective mutism. Um, selective mutism is separate to non-verbal and it basically means that the child is very able to communicate, very able to, to use language, but is very selective in where they use it, mostly mm, okay. due to severe anxiety. Yeah. So that we thought, well, this is it. This is what she's got. She's got selective mutism and that explains her social difficulties. It's because she's anxious and she can't speak. But the reason Naomi got diagnosed was because we were attending a, a social club called Little Stars, which was just a local a local group for parents of children either on the pathway or diagnosed. And it was run by health visitor who was also doing her degree in autism and had a real heart for autism. So she had approached me and said that she was doing her degree and she had to do a research paper and she wanted to research about twins where one of them was diagnosed and would I be willing to let her do some research and, and come and watch the twins. And there's research being done that says that if one twin is diagnosed, there's a higher chance that the other child may be on sure. the spectrum. Yeah. So I said, of course. You know, I knew the lady well and I thought, well, this is all going to be good. And surely, you know, there's nothing that can, there's no damage can be done in this. Mm. And it can only be good for the children because they're getting a, a professional coming in and doing some work with them for free. So she came in and she did some work with Naomi in the house and she did some work with Isaac. And within weeks of this, she came to me and said, I'm concerned that Naomi is displaying some traits of autism spectrum disorder. It wasn't a huge shock to me because by this time I was more knowledgeable about autism sure. and more aware of what it was and had seen other children with it. And I thought, hey, Naomi's doing that. Hey, Naomi's doing that. So she put Naomi forward herself because she was part of the diagnosis team for the area. 
And within six months, uh, Naomi was formally diagnosed with autism as well. So by the time the twins were five, both of them were already diagnosed. Okay, so then with those diagnoses in place, what happened school-wise for them? Well, Isaac, it was never going to be a case of him going to mainstream. I do recall, and it's something that I had blogged about because it was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever had to do, and it's something that I feel the system needs to change in. And in Scotland, you have to register your child at the local mainstream, regardless of whether they're ever going to attend there. Oh, really? You have to? Yeah. Well, if your child's going to go to school, you have to register them at the local mainstream, even if that child is in the system already and it's unlikely. It's basically the mainstream have to keep a place available because your child goes through something. In my area, it's called the Forum but it's got a different name in different areas of Scotland. And your child is discussed by people who have never met them, who decide based on information they have where they feel would be the best placement for that child. But the default would always be mainstream. So if they felt, no, actually, we don't think this child's difficulties are profound enough to require specialist education, then the mainstream have to have a place available, which is why you have to register them. But for a child at that point, Isaac was non-verbal, still in nappies, had only been walking a year, couldn't hold a pencil, didn't know his own name. I mean, I was a trained teacher. There was no way in the world this child was ever going to go to mainstream. But yeah, I, had of course. To, I had to go down and hear all the other parents talking about how exciting it was going to be that Johnny and Jimmy, who'd been to nursery together, were going to come and be in the class together and and get shown round a school that I knew full well he would never see. So I'd asked to defer both children because they were November birthdays and they would have been starting at four. Isaac's deferral was, uh, was refused. Naomi's was accepted, which is why to this day people keep saying, how can your twins be in different group ages at school, different classes? Isaac's deferral, as soon as Isaac's deferral was declined, I knew straight away that that would be because they were going to put him in specialist education. Right. Because there was no way they would have, you know, declined a deferral if he was going to go to mainstream because he wasn't at that stage. So when Naomi's was accepted, that was me. I knew straight away I thought they were going to say mainstream because they'll be hoping another year will make a difference. So Isaac started his specialist placement. We had to fight for that. And that was the first blog I wrote that actually had what I would call significant views. Um, And I wrote a blog called Special Child Denied Special School because he was given a placement in a unit that was extremely unsuitable. A great unit. And and I'm not going to name it because it's a fantastic school, but it wasn't the right placement for for Isaac. So therefore, um, I fought that and and said, you know, how would you feel if this was your child and all of his needs? And obviously, lots of people then shared it. And that was the first blog that really got significant shares. And I remember thinking 3,000 views was, you know, this was amazing. Um, Anyway, within 24 hours, the council came back and said, we have found a place for him. Oh, really? Do Do you think it's because of that? Partly because of that, but partly because I had phoned him and I remember at the time telling him I write a blog and of course nowadays that wouldn't matter, but 
back then, um, I think they must have thought this blog was, you know, this huge blog. And at that point, it wasn't big at all. But anyway, they, they decided that, you know, and I'd said, look, I'll go to the press with this because I really feel so strongly. Um, but within 24 hours, they changed their mind. And he's been in the same school now. He's now, he's only got a year and a half to go before he goes to high school. Whereas Naomi's in the local mainstream and she did go a year later than Isaac, but it's been a fantastic school and they've went out of their way to support her and I can't thank them enough. So they're at different schools, they're at different year groups, but they're twins. Okay, so let's let's talk about them both individually a little bit and how what autism means for them. So let's start with Isaac. Uh, obviously, you've, you've mentioned already, you know, he, he obviously goes to special needs school. Um, he's got some more severe challenges. What what would you say autism means for Isaac? Isaac has no idea what autism is. Isaac, um, only just at 10, seems to now know what his name is. So Isaac has a comprehensive diagnosis. He's diagnosed with severe autism, severe learning difficulties, global developmental delay, neurofibromatosis type 1. He's got an optic glioma, which is a tumour on his eye. He's also got other tumours in his brain. He's severely visually impaired. One of his eyes has got no sight at all. And he was recently diagnosed in the summer with epilepsy. So to Isaac, autism is just a very small part Mm. of who he is and, and what's going on around him. Isaac is in a very blessed position, despite that big long list of of diagnosis that I've just said because Isaac lives in Isaac's world and Isaac's world is a wonderful place to be in. (laughs) Isaac's world doesn't have anything, any horribleness or bitchiness. It doesn't have any sort of, everything is black and white. Everything is secure. Everything is love. Everything is just, it's just wonderful, especially if there's a lift involved or, (laughs) or bing bunny. Um, and, and Isaac's stable, as long as Isaac's routine is in place and Isaac is secure and he's got what he needs around him to feel secure, Isaac is a lovely, happy, bouncy boy and he doesn't have a care in the world. How does Isaac communicate with you and how do you communicate with him? Isaac's got a very unique means of communication, which uh, led to another blog, which went very viral. Um, Isaac communicates mainly by Google Street Map. So yeah, I've seen it. So how did he ever first sort of discover Google Street Map? Like how how did that become a thing? Uh, so Isaac was once Isaac could walk. I came across a very new danger, and that Isaac was a wanderer, um, and he would just wander off. Obviously, with limited vision, no sense of danger, won't respond to his own name. Uh, obviously, that's a huge. Uh, health and safety issue and one day he was just crying and crying and very distressed because he wanted to get out the house but he couldn't safely go and I had this sudden brain wave that I would google the house address and put the house on onto google street map and see whether he might enjoy going out but without going out so he would get all the sensory stimulus that he needed and it would be as if he was walking. And it was just like a light went on in him. Wow. And this was just the most amazing thing ever, as if somebody had just said, 
here is the key to opening your son. And it was just one of those things that just happened. There was no planning. It was just he was highly distressed. I knew that he wanted out, but I knew it wasn't safe. And so put this on for him and sat with him and showed him that he pressed the arrows. And instantly this child took to it. He still can't speak, but he now uses it. Initially, he would just go wandering. He would just take himself. He's always loved the colour red. And very close to us, we have a fire station. So he would take himself to the fire station because it was painted. <laughs> just because it was painted red yeah. and the fire engines were red. There was no Brilliant. other reason. And then very soon after that, he discovered that we live close to a McDonald's. <laughs> so he would find the McDonald's. Well, you can just imagine the absolute delight. So it was quite um, funny trying to explain to Isaac that just because you found it on Google Street Map doesn't mean you're actually there. <laughs> He used to think that if you took yourself to McDonald's on Google Street Map, that you could instantly eat McDonald's. <laughs> That's a, a challenge, I can imagine. Yes. <laughs> but then I started using it and thought, right, okay, he's now got the idea of this. So by this time, he was about five. And he also had glasses, so he was able to see a wee bit better. And we had an iPad for him. And I thought, well, if I need to take him anywhere then I'm going to use this to my advantage as well. So I started dreaming up ways that I could use Google Street Map to help him. Hmm. So if we had to go to the dentist, I would take him from the house to the dentist on Google Street Map first. And all of a sudden, places that he'd really struggled with became accessible because he knew where he was going yeah. and he could see the building and he knew what it was like. And and this was just, it was just a, a huge deal to us. Now at 10, Isaac uses Google Street Map himself to communicate. So if I'm cooking a meal, this is the fun ones, if I'm cooking something and he smells it and he doesn't like it, he'll take himself to McDonald's. <laughs> That's the fun one. Um, but then seriously, if he's really not well, um, I've, I've found him, he'll bring it, he'll take himself to where he wants to go and then he brings it to show you, yeah. which was the key thing because Isaac didn't bring anything to us. Um, so for him to bring something over, and of course when he first started, if he took himself to McDonald's, I would take him straight to the car to go to McDonald's because I was rewarding his yeah. communication. So when he started taking us to I mean, his school is 14 miles away, and he can take you to his school. And does he follow the journey, the exact journey? Oh, like, it's exactly yeah. the journey the taxi would make. I have to say, he doesn't stop at any traffic lights, and he goes right <laughs> over the top around the road. So, That's so um, clever. It's really incredible, because I'm a driver, and I would like, where is it we would go through here again? <laughs> um, and he obviously can't read, but yeah. he's got such a photographic memory. Mm. Um, but now... If he's feeling unwell, he'll take me to the doctors. And that's a breakthrough moment, yeah, as I'm brilliant. sure you'll understand. Yeah, it's so good. And if we need to go anywhere, if there's something on at Naomi's school, I'll take him via Google. It's a bit like we use it now for a social story. Yeah. We wouldn't make a story. We would say, look, this is where we are going to go. And that's, as I say, really seems to be more helpful for him because He's not just seeing an outside picture or a PEX card, which never meant anything to him. It's the real building 
on the real journey. I know what I'm going to see. I know what I'm going to do. And then, but you must always bring him back. That was the bit that we struggled with. And we thought, why is he still distressed? Because if you took him somewhere on Google Street Map and then you didn't bring him home again, he thought he was there forever. Right, okay. You had to, to realise, no, we've got, we will so come home again. you had to do again. the journey in reverse. Yeah. to do the journey reverse as well. So, but I have to say, he's he was quicker at finding the reverse, because I'm like, no, where would I go here? Um, so if you want to go to a shopping centre, just do it on Google Street Map first. If you're going to go on holiday and it's too far away, at least show him what the buildings look like on Google Street Map, and it seem, and then he can explore the the area round about it, and then he knows where he's going. So he's got hospital on Monday, and I'll do the same again. I'll put the hospital on and and let him see where he's going, and that will put him at ease, and he'll be a much better passenger as a result. As you said. It makes a lot of sense because he's seen it exactly how he will see it when he travels there rather than a picture or, a, you know, he's, he's seen the sort of 360 degree view that he would have. And and to him, that's just how it would be. Yeah. The downside, I mean, there are downsides to, to the Google Street Map. It's wonderful and it's opened a whole new world to him. But the downside is that he doesn't stop at traffic lights, so he doesn't see how we should. Mm. And I often tell this funny story to people when I talk about Google Street Map because his sister, who's also on the spectrum, and this shows you how different everybody is on the spectrum. So she'd said to me, Mum, Mum, I really want to use Google Street Map. Let me use it. Let me use it. So I put it on her iPad and I let her use it. And half an hour later, she came over to me and said, this is useless. <laughs> I cannot work it. And I said, what, what is it? You just use the arrow. Mum? I'm at the bottom of the road and I've turned the corner and I'm stuck at a red light. Ah. <laughs> and her autism meant she couldn't break the rules. Yeah. So the lights were red, so you can't go through them. So she had got wow. to the end of the street, turned the corner and could not move because the lights were red. Um, so obviously if you're a driver and you're driving with Isaac in your car, he doesn't understand that you should stop at a red light and that you should give way at roundabouts. Because he doesn't do that on Google Street Map. <laughs> and he doesn't understand diversions because that's not the way he went on Google Street Map. So one-way streets are a bit of a mystery to him. We keep saying, don't don't let him drive. Don't ever let Isaac <laughs> drive. But as a parent, it's been a, it's a real breakthrough moment for it us. Like, and yeah. it's, it's made a big difference to his peace of mind in giving him a way. It doesn't give him a way to communicate in speech. And it doesn't give him a way to communicate. But he has his own way. He uses a lot of... He very much is the 3D whole dimensional thing. Peck's pictures were never anything he was interested in. But actual real photographs. So he'll look through photographs on his iPad. And if he sees something, he loves mashed potato. And you would be amazed that he's got poor eyesight, but he can see mashed potato in any picture he wants to find <laughs> mashed potato. And he will highlight the picture and make it bigger and bring you it just to show you the bit of mashed potato to say he would like mashed potato. It's brilliant. Um, so he's, he's quite ingenious. Yeah. But it's all technology type. And, and obviously it's at the level that, that works for him. And so we just use, utilize that to the best of our ability to work for him. Brilliant. That's so one other, uh, I guess, special interest of Isaac's that has always sort of interested me and made me smile is his love of lifts. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. Isaac is a sensory seeker. He's never beaten somebody that's... I look at pictures of children with autism and, and a lot of them want ear defenders on. Hmm. Isaac is a seeker. He seeks out loud noise, probably because his vision is so poor. So he likes big, bold, loud, um, in-your-face type stuff, and he would seek that. So... I used to, even when he was in a buggy, he used to just laugh at the lift doors opening and closing. And it's so predictable for him. You press a yeah. button, the doors, they, they do the same thing every time. And then he just, he just gets such a buzz out of watching lifts. So last year I had put a status on my personal Facebook just saying, you know, what do you buy a child like Isaac who doesn't play with toys? He's got his iPad to communicate. The only thing he would really want is a lift. <laughs> Obviously, can <laughs> so an ingenious a friend of mine, Gemma, another blogging friend, she had um, just surprised me by making a page for him, where people throughout the world could uplift, uh, upload videos of lifts. And my goodness, so we bought bought him an iPod, and we downloaded all these lift videos. And my goodness me, this made this child smile. He doesn't mind that they're from Paris or America or yeah. care, they're just left. Yeah. People come out and in them or press buttons where well, that's and the doors open and close. That was even better for them. So through that and then I know you've interviewed Mark before. He has runs Little Blue Cup. He happened to be invited to ITVs this morning and they were talking about Little Blue Cup and wanted to do something for one of the children to find an item. Well, of course, the items can sometimes be extremely difficult to find. So Mark had highlighted that Isaac had this page and that people could upload lift videos. So before we knew it, Holly and uh, Philip Schofield were making a lift video live on this morning with some pictures of Isaac, and we were able to download that onto his iPod too. Now, I have to be honest and say Isaac doesn't have a clue who these people are. <laughs> interested in the lift than what he is the people but I as a parent I was extremely grateful and it was just it's such an exciting time and then as a result of that P&O Ferries contacted me and said that they had a flagship cruise ship the Arcadia was coming into Southampton and they wanted to invite Isaac to see the lifts and my immediate reaction was, well, that's lovely, but I'm up in Scotland and I'm a full-time carer. You know, we, we live on benefits. Getting to Southampton isn't really on my agenda. Um, so then there was a Just Giving page opened by Mark and Gemma and other cruise companies put in. It was, it was unbelievable. It was just quite surreal that within a week we were on a plane flying down to Southampton for the children to to see the lifts in this Arcadia ship, uh, a cruise ship. Um, I'd never been on a cruise ship in my life. And Isaac just had the time of his life. He really did. And that was Christmas for us. Yeah, I remember. It, it was such a lovely story. And uh, I can just imagine how, how much he must have loved being on that ship. Oh, he still watches the video over and over and yeah. over again. Um, that was taken and I did a live one on Isaac's page. That wasn't the first time we'd had major publicity that year either. 
um, as Naomi kept saying, why do we end up famous? And it's not even anything that I look for in any way. When I started writing the blog, there was no sense of looking for attention or looking for sympathy. It was very much about trying to raise awareness of some of the conditions that the children are living with. But Naomi had been on BBC Breakfast earlier that year as well. Um, yeah, I remember this, yeah. So she'd been on that because I'd written, that came about because I'd written a blog for another site um, and they had just said to me, just write a blog about whatever you like and sort of send it into us. And at that point in time, the spinners were all the craze and in her school and I kind of thought, I wonder if it's a craze everywhere else and it seemed to be. And I just wrote, at that point, my children have their own sensory room now and we have a whole load of these type of sensory toys. And it quite amused me that what was originally designed for people with autism and ADHD was becoming the in thing. Yeah. And I just wrote a post about that on the site and it went very, very viral for the site. It got 100,000 plus shares. It just happened to be the in thing and it's time and it's everything in these things, really. So the BBC had found that blog and... I was on the radio and then we were invited. So the children got an all-expenses-paid trip on a train this time down to Manchester and we were on BBC Breakfast. Isaac, of course, couldn't get past the lift. So there was, <laughs> unless they were going to film in the lift, yeah. he wasn't interested, didn't even know what a spinner was. Um, but Naomi enjoyed a bit of limelight going on and, and showing her spinner. She wouldn't speak, obviously, with selective mutism. But that again, that just brings awareness of what it's like. Yeah, definitely. So let, let, let's let's use that and move on to Naomi. So obviously, you, you've mentioned already that Naomi and Isaac are very different. So tell us a bit about Naomi and and what autism means to her life. Um, Naomi's very very proud to be autistic. Mm. Um, I'm trying to instill in Naomi as much as possible a positive self image because I'm acutely aware of how different she is but she's maybe just beginning at 10 to realize how different she is to her peers so in that difference it would be very easy for her self-esteem to plummet for her self-image to be so low and for her just to feel where do I fit in in the world so this is where I've tried now um as she's got older to to maybe befriend and and sort of become knowledgeable of other autistic adults and how they can help her and and support her. So she's met Chris Benetillo a couple of times um, in the house and that's been a real positive thing for her as well. And she's trying to develop her own way in life. So she knows that she's different to her peers. She has no learning disability, but she knows that she's anxious and she knows that she struggles to speak as she says my voice just doesn't work at times um and she knows that socially she's not doing the same thing as her peers but she's now developed her own sort of well this is who I am and this is what I do and so she's becoming quite secure in that and I hope that that continues through her teenage years um she is very aware of her brother's autism and she talks about it simply as he has a lot of autism 
and I have a little bit of autism. Okay. Keep it quite simple like that. Yeah. But she knows what autism is and she knows how it affects her and she knows how it affects her brother. And she knows that that this is going to be something she'll always struggle with. And she's she already knows there's been lots of discussions about she's unlikely to go to mainstream high school and why that would be. Um, but we try not to focus on the difficulties and I'm trying to give her her own voice. And you'll know yourself that in recent years, I've been allowing Naomi to actually blog herself. Yeah, yeah um, I've seen that. And they've been very, very well received because it's through her eyes and it's how she would do it. So people say to me, is she really written it? She has. She dictates them. She wants me to do the physical writing because she said that's boring. And then, so she will dictate it all, tell me what it is she wants me to write. I write it all on the, the iPad. And then she sits for about a week reading it all and chopping and changing it as she feels until she's ready for it to go. And then she she understands that lots of people read it. Um, and sometimes we'll have discussions about, is this something that's right for other people? to read or is this something that we just keep for us and so there are blogs that she's written that may never get published okay. and and that's it's, it's about teaching her what is right to share with the world and yeah. and what what isn't um and that will be ongoing throughout her teenage years obviously as well so she's very vulnerable but she's also very proud to be autistic and she's achieved an awful lot in her 10 years um but she's very unabrasive about it she really doesn't have any idea um i don't know if you recall the swing story yeah i do yeah um so the swing story is that there was a park built behind our house and cost millions of pounds to get it done and we came back from the park one day and i mean i just kind of let the children play and Naomi had said, Mum, there wasn't a swing for Isaac. And I was like, well, what do you mean there wasn't a swing for Isaac? He was so busy playing that I hadn't really noticed much. Yeah. You know, terrible me. But he, had, she'd noticed that he'd put his little characters in the baby swing. But I wouldn't lift him into a baby swing because he'd get stuck. But there was only flat older children's swings. And she asked me why that was. And I said, well, I don't know. You know, that that's maybe something that they should have thought about. So the next thing she know, uh, she was saying, how do you spell disabled and stuff? So I was spelling words, which isn't it's some, not out of character for her to ask how to spell words. So I'm just telling her these words. And the next thing she said, I've written a letter and she'd written it, Dear Park Builders. And I'll never forget this line. She'd written, why did you forget about my brother? Oh. And she just couldn't get in her head. This was her processing the fact that the park didn't have a swing so I had to sit with her and say well can I send that to the people and then maybe they might put a swing in for Isaac or we can fundraise for one or something and uh, but of course her autism this is the funny part of it her autism meant she didn't want the page taken out the pad because it had to stay perfect so I thought well I just kind of felt I owed it to her to do she just went to this effort to eat to write this letter, she didn't even know who to write it to. But I thought, I, I, I just feel it would be wrong to have that sit there and do nothing about it when she's felt so strongly about it. So I took a photograph of the letter and I said to her, well, can I send the photograph? 
yes, you can send the photograph, but don't take the letter out of the book because that's my <laughs> book and I don't want it taken out. So I, I know, took a photograph and I just tweeted the council. And again, my Twitter's not massive, so I didn't think anything would really come of it. But obviously it caught the attention of some people. And literally that was on the Saturday and by the Monday we were being filmed for the ITV News. She was on BBC. There were stories all around the world about this wee girl that had written a letter wanting a swing. By the Thursday of that week, the swing had been changed. Really? That quickly? That quickly. Wow. Apparently there was a, a disability swing sitting sitting in a cupboard. You know why? Which is amazing, but so frustrating at the same time, because if Naomi hadn't have said anything, it never would have happened. It's absolutely unbelievable yeah. that it took time. And I, and I know that as an adult, I could have campaigned till I was blue in the face and nothing would, nobody yeah. would have listened. But the voice of a child is so powerful. And she didn't realise the power in her voice. Yeah, her of course not. As far as she's concerned, well, he's got the swing and that's what's made me happy. And so I've got some beautiful pictures of them, you know, that it was difficult. And I did because people think, oh, this is great and everything. But obviously I've got two children with very complex needs, James. And so it's very much like, how do I minimise the impact of the media attention Sure. on the children because you'll know yourself I can't just suddenly say that yeah that's fine at four o'clock we'll go to the park if at yeah. four o'clock they eat their dinner you know it's like well we can't really interrupt a routine here and they're not <laughs> going to go raining and and so it was quite sort of and I have to say Naomi's school um are next door to the park they were so accommodating and said look if you want to take her out of school to film, that's fine because we know the impact that this can have on Isaac. So they were very understanding, very very proud of her as well. Yeah, and I, I, remember, I remember her head teacher saying, "Yeah, she can mention what school she goes to because her spelling's all right." And her, her <laughs> handwriting's really neat. And I just thought that that just really tickled me. I thought that's just such a head teacher's point of view. But yeah, so that made um, and she always talks about oh. Yeah, when I was eight, I was famous. Um, but she's got no idea what it really meant. But it's interesting because so many of these things, I often wonder whether they would have actually happened if I hadn't been blogging. Yeah, I don't think they would. And it it does show, you know, I've, I've had some, some previous guests with similar stories that, you know, social media can be a frustrating and annoying place at times, but it also can make a huge difference when it's used in the right way. And you know, stories like this, just by writing that letter, the impact it can have on so many other families in the area, it's fantastic. And I think that that is very much true. That's what I wanted to achieve is what I would call natural autism awareness. Yeah. So it's not just about, you know, me writing a blog saying, and yes, I have had blogs that have had a lot of attention and some of them by nature of the internet are because they're negative and people relate to that. So for me, having the story about Isaac going down and seeing lifts or Naomi writing that letter, these are more natural autism awareness because it's it's much more positive, but mm. it's also real life, everyday life. It's not me attracting attention in any way. And the children aren't attracting attention to themselves. They're not Naomi didn't write the letter to get any sort of attention. Her sole motive was, I want to help my brother. 
because he's immensely close to him for all these difficulties. That's what I was going to ask. How? What's the dynamic like at home with with both of them? I mean, you say that at home is very close to Isaac. Like, how? What's it like between them, and how do you manage? How do I manage? How do you manage both of their needs? I guess to... it's a very difficult one because, and I wouldn't ever speak publicly down about my husband, but he has his own struggles. Mm. He's diagnosed with neurofibromatosis type one, the same as Isaac, which means that he has tumours all over his body too. Wow. He doesn't have the same learning disability as Isaac, but he was diagnosed at 59 last year as being on the autism spectrum himself, which is something I knew and he knew, but it was only formalised last year. And he also struggles quite significantly with depression. So a lot of the day-to-day care is very much um, on myself, and that's because he struggles so much. Yeah. So... Isaac is very, very, very routine-based. You, you don't touch the routine and everything has to be done. And I'll be honest, there are times when Naomi's very scared of him when he goes into meltdown or he's, he's agitated about something or self-harming. That can be a real concern for her. So providing Isaac's routine is in a, uninterrupted. And then I try and balance that. So there'll be times when Isaac will be in the bath and obviously he needs me there to watch him but I can still be playing a game. So we're a very unconventional family. So we would play snakes and ladders on the bathroom floor, which seems so unconventional, but I have to be in the room to look after Isaac because he could have a seizure. But I also want to utilise that time where physically Isaac is attended to, um, but it means I can have some time with Naomi. So we often clear the floor in the bathroom and we'll we'll play snakes and ladders or we'll do some homework while we're supervising Isaac. And the other thing is that Isaac loves colours and especially red. So I'll be doing something with Naomi in the bathroom and Isaac will do his whole routine. And before I know it, you know, I'll turn around and Naomi's interacting with them and teaching them and she'll say, oh, never mind, Mum, I've just won snakes and ladders. I'm just doing this with Isaac. <laughs> and he likes um, foam letters in the bath. Yeah. And he sticks them up on the wall and it's just a random order. But he doesn't want me to interfere with that. I've got to be in the room, but I'm not allowed to speak to him or anything. He's got his set routine. But he lets his sister into his world where he won't let other That's people. Lovely. So <clears throat> she'll say, give me an E, give me an A, give me <laughs> a E and whatever. And he'll find them. And, and she's used that to really joke with me as well. I remember one time... Um, he was in the bath, James, and it was hilarious. She's saying, Mum, look away, look away, look away. Isaac's done a number two. Isaac's got a number two in the bath. Well, you can imagine what I'm <laughs> thinking because this is a nightly occurrence. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> and it was a foam number two. And she yeah. went, fooled you, Mum, fooled you, Mum. Uh-huh. And we had a good laugh. So she can sort of jolly. And, of course, Isaac doesn't understand what the joke would be. Yeah. But... He thinks that Naomi laughing is clearly something to laugh about, so then he would start laughing as well. And it's such a unique bond that he can't enter her world, but she enters his daily. Isaac loves set stories at night. He has Bing Bunny stories. And if I've got a croaky throw or just something's happened where maybe he's been sick or something and I'm clearing that up, she'll sit on the bed 
hey, Isaac, what story is it next? And he'll pick up the story and she'll read it to him. And that that's, I mean, that just chokes me up. Yeah, I bet. That's great. It sounds like they've got a really lovely bond. So she knows his routine. She knows what he wants. And it doesn't matter to her that he can't speak. It's, it's never really... She has said a few times, you know, it'd be nice to have a conversation with them. And, but generally, she just accepts him for who she is. And very, 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 in public, very possessive of him, but very protective yeah. of him. To the point where you don't even realise she's doing it. If I take them to the park now or if I take them to soft play, she's very aware that other people see Isaac as different. And she's watching how people react and she'll say, Mum, somebody looked at him a bit funny. You know, keep an eye on them, Mum. Mum, somebody said something. And obviously I've got to teach her because her autism is so black and white. So someone looking at Isaac, she sees, well, obviously they are bullying him. Yeah. And No, they're just looking at him. So it's trying to, to help her understand that people are curious and that's okay. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really important point that sometimes when we're out in public and people do stare or, or look over, we automatically see it as a negative and they're being judgmental. And obviously sometimes they are, but a lot of the time people are curious. And maybe 10 years ago when I knew nothing about autism, I might have been that person looking over and wondering, you know, what's what's going on over there. So yeah, it's it can be challenging for, for us being out sometimes, but I, f- I think we do have to remember that at times as well. Oh, absolutely. And I'm trying to say to Naomi, you know, people may just recognise this as well, because obviously she has been um, on yeah, the, especially locally, the television. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and locally people know who she is. So they're maybe not doing anything negative, but obviously to her, anybody even so much as, you know, saying or doing anything towards Isaac and she gets very, very, it's okay for her to get angry. She's his sister. But um, <laughs> obviously it's different and nobody else is allowed to, to do it. And, then, and even just last night, she was um, in her room doing some homework and I was supervising Isaac. So she went to her desk where I could see her, but she could do her homework. And, and Isaac hadn't quite got in the bath yet. He was just sort of mulling around, you know, it's, it's ran and I know it's there and I'll get there when, I'm, when I've finished what I'm doing. And he was curious as to what Naomi was doing. And she kept saying, it's all right, I'm just doing homework, I'm just doing homework. And the next thing I know, he went into his room and, and I thought, what's he looking for? And then we both, Naomi and I thought, he's looking for a pad or something. So we got my pad and uh, and I thought, he wants to do homework. And I'm saying to Isaac, do you want to do homework? And he can sign yes. Yeah. So he signed yes. So we just got him a pencil and... You know, Naomi loaned him a pencil out of a pencil case and we had such a beautiful moment where he pretended to do homework. Um and I said, Come on, we'll try and write your name and, and he can't write it yet and that's okay for us. But he did some scribbles on a bit of paper and then he stripped off and got in his bath and he obviously had in his head that's what I'm supposed to do because that's what my sister's doing. So I thought that was just such a lovely moment. Yeah, it sounds. It, our kids always surprise us, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So obviously, it's very clear from our chat how important blogging is to your life, and I think from an enjoyment point of view, but also from, like you said, being able to share and highlight 
the different conditions that your children live with and and trying to raise awareness around them. One of the things I love about your writing is you're very honest and you share the good and the bad and the challenging and and you always, you know, you just put your point of view of how you felt at that time. Obviously, I, from your writing and from talking to you, I know there's been some very challenging points over the years, just like there's been in my life when you have children who have so many daily challenges it can be tiring and 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 very emotional when you share these stories and as you said earlier often the ne- the more negative or seemingly negative ones get more views and more more widely read and more commented on and usually very very supportive but also sometimes some very critical comments as well which which are very unfair how do you cope with all that on top of everything else that you're doing that's a really um, <clears throat> difficult question. There's been times when I have coped and then there's been times when I haven't. Mm. A lot of it was unexpected. I remember the first, specifically um, the first what I would call deeply emotional post that I wrote. And I wrote it as I was living it, um, as you do. And it was called Grieving for a Child That I Haven't Lost. And it was a real... Um, time where I was realising how different Isaac was and that a lot of my sadness was grief for the child I dreamed of having and I won't hold back on that because so many others have walked that walk and experiencing it and we need to talk about it and we yeah, really need I to agree. and but that was picked up um, by a site called The Mighty and at that point, I had never had any other site highlight any of my blogs. So uh, from a blogging personal point of view, that was like a, a milestone. But it was also a huge eye-opener to me because in my naivety at that point, I had no idea that this could be such a controversial subject because although obviously... I knew that grief was a controversial subject. This was my personal emotions of going through something that was extremely personal to me. So to have people slate that particular blog felt as if people were criticising me personally when they didn't even know me. And so I actually sought advice from um, some counsellors and some things at the time because I kind of thought, was I wrong to write about that was I have I put my children which I would never dream of doing but had I inadvertently put my child in a position where um, I was exposing him and that was something I had never wanted to do with the blog in any yeah. way but in actual fact it was brought to me that I wasn't exposing him I was exposing my own heart and in exposing your own heart you're going to attract people that say I felt that same way too it's that phrase that say friendship is is coming to somebody that says I've been there too, what you too, and and so I attracted a lot of that and a huge amount of extra followers as a result of people saying I can identify, um and it was about me as a a person went through a real difficult time of saying, do I take on board what these people are saying and change my blog, my feelings and my thoughts to what other people think I should be feeling and thinking? Or do I stand up and say, but this is how I'm feeling and I can't change that? 
whether that's right or wrong, this is how I'm feeling. And so it sort of gave me a bit of backbone, which I know is what's enabled me. I was, I was at a turning point at that point where I either continued to blog and be true to myself or I stopped and said, okay, I can't manage this anymore. This, the weight of this is too hard. And at that point, there was nothing hugely personal. It was more about people disagreed with the fact you could grieve for a child that was still living and breathing and with you. And I absolutely understand that and, and, and respect that fully. But that stood me in good stead for blogs that went later went on to the point where people threatened to kill me and threatened to kill my children. And it became very personal. And I've spoken before about the fact that um, a couple of years ago, I did have to go to the police with a number of comments on the blog because they crossed the line of healthy disagreement to being extremely personal um, and threatening myself and my children and when it crossed that line it was time unfortunately to get the police involved yeah. um, <clears throat> because it's online harassment and it's online bullying and it's trolling and there's absolutely no need for it yeah and like, like I said a, a few minutes ago there's so much good around social media but then <laughs> you know incidents like this shows you how how awful it can be at times and luckily for me I, I haven't had anything anywhere near as as uh, abusive as that but I, so I can only imagine how how horrible it must feel to be on the other end of that it's not nice but yeah it comes with and I, I suppose I've learned now that as the blog has got bigger and the readership has got bigger and when you start hitting you know a million views and you start hitting over a million unique visitors to your site they're not all going to agree with you. No, of course. And I don't expect anyone to agree with everything I say or agree with everything that you say. But like you said, how you feel and your story is your story. It's Yeah. I can't say to you, you didn't feel grief in that moment because it's how you felt. And I know that some people have very much accused me of deliberately writing blogs to get attention or... You know, there's certain sort of headlines that people would say, well, you wrote that provocative headline. Something called, there's something called clickbait, which um, a writer, it's a way that a lot of sites who literally just want to attract likes or attract attention. And it's a type of writing that people have accused me of deliberately doing in order to attract attention, which isn't the case at all. Obviously, I really enjoy writing and I understand writing. And I know that there is very much power in, in the right heading or in the right photograph that goes with the blog and that these things are what can often make a blog hit or miss. If you tweak a title, then it can help Google find you. It, this is just over the five, six years of blogging things that I've discovered myself. And... I would like to think that anybody that reads my blog would know that what I write is directly in relation to the title. So I wrote a blog um, just over a year ago called I Don't Want to Be an Autism Parent Anymore. And that one was the one that got me the most hatred. But I've never deleted that blog. And I've been on a long journey, as you may know. And I then met up with Chris Bonello, 
who, as far as the internet was concerned, we should be total arch enemies because he writes positively as a an adult autistic and I write as a parent uh, of a child severely affected by autism. And on the surface, we were supposedly writing at opposite ends of the spectrum, so to speak. But in actual fact, Chris and I are really good friends now. Um, um, but there's a lot to be learned from each other. And I have always had the utmost of respect for Chris and anything I write has never in any way been to shame him or to go against anything that he's writing. It's very much my lived experience and what I'm going through at the time or what's happening with the children. And I try and relate that to the bigger picture of what maybe other people are going through. So that particular one was written on a very difficult day, after a very difficult week, after a very difficult month. And it was a true reflection of how I felt at the time. But like every blog, that doesn't mean to say that, and I know from your own blogs, there'll be blogs that you could read today and honestly say, I don't feel like that right now. But at the time when I wrote it, that was exactly how I felt. And it's part of each person's individual journey. And so as part of my journey, that had to be written. And it was right that I wrote it. And yet I also know and fully understand why so many people would find difficulty in a post like that. But it's all part of who I am. But it's also part of I'm a huge believer that we need to be honest about life. And that's not just about autism. It's about life in general. We shouldn't need to put masks on. We shouldn't need to feel that we're ashamed of who we are and how we feel about things. And so I would like to think that that's kind of how it's it's represented in my blog. Um, It's a true reflection of my journey and my children's journey, both the highs and the lows. I think that's exactly it. You're Like I said in the beginning, you're you're honest and you write how you feel on that day or on that week or month and and it changes over time and it changes same here you have good days weeks months bad days weeks months and and what you write at that time is going to be relatable to someone and to other people they're in a completely different position and that and that's absolutely right yeah. and that's about life in general that's not even about autism mm. i mean i could be writing about anything and really that's the key and and I know that the, the, the final question you're going to ask me, and, and I've been thinking about this for a while, and and to me, the one thing I would want to achieve out of my blog is for somebody to say, I don't feel alone anymore. Yeah. And that, yeah, that exactly to that. me, is, is all I want. It's not about, um, yes, people will become more autism aware, and yes, people will become more aware of the situations with, my children and the conditions that we face but I don't do it for sympathy and I don't do it for attention I do it because I think every time I'm writing there is someone somewhere who is going through this and they need to know that they're not alone. How do you there is such a contrast of emotions that that go on over the months and years when, when you're a parent like you are and I've seen that you know you you've spoken and you try to make a conscious effort to work on your own sort of mental health and, and be in the best position to be able to care for Isaac and Naomi. What 
how do you try and get into that? Like, what works for you? What works for me now is swimming. Um, mm. It didn't. It wasn't always. Um, I also have a very strong faith, which is why my blog is called Faith Mummy. And every time I see the title of that, it reminds me that I do need to to keep my faith as something that's strong there, um, because it can become such a tiny part of the blog when it's in actual fact a huge part of my life. Um, and the faith is what's kept me going through really tough times. But physically, what keeps me going now is is swimming. And that was just um, really just in May like this year. Um, I felt that my weight was really suffering because my lifestyle is such that, you know, the kids are at school, you've maybe not had a good night's sleep or you've been really struggling emotionally. You just feel really drained. So it would be too easy to just go for a nap, to, to make yourself some biscuits and some tea. And before you know it, you're really in an unhealthy lifestyle, not because you want to be, but because it's very difficult to get out of that rut yeah. of feeling low and feeling almost self-pity, but without realising that you're feeling self-pity, you just become kind of stuck in the way that you do things. Um, and for myself, sometimes just the the difficulty of being able to find a time to eat because the children's needs were so intense that I tended to wait till they went to sleep at night, which could be quite late. And I was eating late. Then I would be thinking, oh, I'm too tired to, to cook. I'll just order a takeaway. And my weight was creeping up. And therefore, I was feeling sluggish. I was feeling low. So I decided that I really need to do something to try and boost my... I'd been on antidepressants years ago and... The GP was adamant that I wasn't depressed. It was my lifestyle and that really it was because I was sleep deprived, which is the case for most parents of children with special needs of any sort of level. I was sleep deprived. I was emotionally struggling. And I thought, you know, I'm stuck here and I need to do something about it. So I used to love swimming. I used to love cycling. I used to love running. And I just got out of the way of it. And one day I just took myself down to the, the swimming pool and I remember struggling to do 12 lengths and it was a huge struggle. And I came out and I just thought, well, I've done something, but I'm exhausted. And the next day I thought, I'll go back again. And I did 20 lengths and I thought, well, that's an improvement. And already I felt better because I thought, well, I've, I've improved from yesterday. I'm doing <laughs> yeah. something. It might only be 20 lengths. You don't have to tell Facebook about it, but I've done something and I've done something for me. Um, so within a week, I was doing, you know, 40 lengths, and I was really, really feeling the difference. Um, now, as far as possible, I try and swim a mile a day, which is 64 lengths. Um, don't always get to do it, because obviously there's appointments and things, but that helps me physically, which then helps me emotionally, which then helps me mentally, and it becomes that I feel, well... I'm getting some time away from being an autism parent and things don't become such a big deal that I feel myself writing, I don't want to be an autism parent anymore because of truth be told, I don't always feel like that. But you can get so that it can define your whole life. And now I'm trying to get a bit of perspective 
um, on my life and think my children are 10. Uh, there's no such thing as a babysitter and my life does revolve around routine. I can't get out at night. But when they're at school, if I can just take half an hour a day to do something for me, do something like this podcast, to write, to read, to have a cup of tea, to take myself to the shops or to go swimming, then I feel more in control and feel a better person about myself. And that enables me to be there more for my children. So I'm trying to self-care, I suppose you would call it. But I just kind of see it as caring for the family, because if you don't care about me, then who's going to be there for the children? I think that's so important. It's something that gets neglected, especially when we go through the more challenging periods or you know, it's very easy to neglect yourself. And like you said, if you're not getting any sleep, you make unhealthy choices and you don't feel like doing anything and you, you know, you become sluggish and it just becomes a cycle. And when you do, when you are able to take the time, even if it is half an hour or an hour to do something for you, especially if it's something physical as well, which always makes you feel better, it really makes that evening a bit easier or the weekend a bit easier. It's something we really need to try and find the time to do. Oh, absolutely. I remember um, the day that I kept saying, oh, the, the swimming pool I go to, there was a gym that overlooked it, and it's just a local authority one, and I just thought, maybe I should go to the gym. Oh, no, I'm too fat for the gym. Maybe I should go to the gym. No, I wouldn't know what to do. And eventually, um, I was my husband was really struggling, never going out the house at all, just in a worse position than I was mentally. He's on very high antidepressants. And his carer's assessment highlighted the fact that he was socially isolated and he had no hobbies. So we worked, I worked hard with him, you know, what could we, what could you do? What could you do that could be your hobby? And it was also highlighted that he was immensely overweight and obviously the lifestyle and everything. So I said, well, he doesn't like swimming, he doesn't like cycling. Well, why don't we look at the gym? So we went to see the gym, not with a view to him joining because he was adamant he wasn't going to join, but just to see what a gym was, really. And when we got there and we explained that we just wanted to see what was involved because um, of the circumstances, the local authority actually had huge reductions when you were over 60, which my husband was, massive reductions if you were a carer, and another reduction if you were on benefits. So my husband joined the gym for thruppence, you know, <laughs> next to nothing. And I kind of thought, well, there you go. You know, we didn't know that was even available. Yeah. So then he kept saying, well, I'm going and I'm doing half an hour. And for him, half an hour on a treadmill was a massive achievement. Yeah, so I thought, well, if he, if he can do it, then I can join the gym. <laughs> so I joined the gym myself. And I don't go very often. I still prefer swimming. But I've got the gym there. So if there's days when maybe I've only got half an hour, I can do half an hour on a treadmill. Yeah. And as you say, that makes a huge difference. The children don't understand and don't need to know. But I've lost weight. I mean, it's not hugely significant, but my body's shape has changed. And therefore, I feel better about myself. And because I feel better, I don't get so down about the nightly poo in the bath and the the smearing and the not, you know, your child's not eating, that can become so overbearing so quickly. And I look back on some of my blogs and I think, actually, that was what was lacking, was perspective. Mm. 
But on the other hand, if I'd had the perspective, there would have been somebody said, well, I can't relate because yeah. I'm stuck in a rut. So I think I'd like to think that people can look back and see the journey and see it all together and see how my blogs have changed. I mean, last week's one was my severely autistic son does have a bright future. I mean, you contrast that to I don't want to be an autism parent anymore. Yeah, that's a massive change, isn't it? And it's perspective. Mm. And it is, okay, there'll be other ones I'll write in the future and people say, you know, (laughs) you keep chopping and changing. I don't. It fluctuates on a day-to-day basis. I think that's normal. You wouldn't be human if you didn't. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, just before we get to the final question, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on today and sharing your story with us and for sharing your beautiful family uh, through all your blogs and the stories that you tell. Isaac and Naomi sound fantastic. I love sort of following their progress over the last few years and seeing all the wonderful things that they get up to uh, (laughs) through the stories that you tell and the awareness that you raise. And just want to thank you for being so honest. I know you've had some hard times with, like you said, you know, having to go to the police at times with, with some awful comments. But I'm really glad that you haven't lost sight of the good that you do just by being honest and by by sharing your story so so thank you thank you very much for that and how can everybody find you and you said faith mummy just let everyone know the best way to find you online um on the blog it's www.faithmummy.wordpress.com and then on facebook it's just type in faith mummy there is no other site with the same name on facebook um, and you can follow us on there on twitter i'm very naive and it's just my name gwen miriam um, or one word and and that's really the best place to find me i'm sure people will see my blogs about a blog yeah. for firefly family fund the mighty all sorts of places so um they may have seen me about other places as well great well i'll link that all up in the show notes uh and yeah final question what would you like the world to know about autism basically that you're not alone if you have autism you're not alone you're not the only one that feels what you feel and experiences what you experience. And if you're an autism parent or a parent of someone on the spectrum or even just a general special needs parent, then you're not alone either. Somebody has been where you are. Don't ever feel alone. Massive thank you to Miriam. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did getting to talk to her. I'm sure you'll agree there's some really funny and interesting stories there of what Isaac and Naomi have been up to over the years and really interesting to see how really important I think to see how Miriam's realised that she needs to spend some more time on self-care you know sometimes we forget about who cares for the carers and for someone like her it's it's really important that um, she looks after herself too not just her children there'll be a new podcast up next week make sure you tell somebody about the podcast and I'll talk to you soon